Christchurch, New Malden, Sunday the 29th of October 2023, 11 o'clock service. Stephen Kurt speaking on Psalm 7. Well, whatever we do with our lives, we will know that there are some technical words that people often need to learn if they're going to master a particular area of life. So whether someone is a doctor or whether they're a plumber, whether they're an electrician or an accountant, whether they're a nursery teacher or someone who works in retail, there'll always be some technical words that are used in those worlds. Words that won't necessarily make a lot of sense to people outside of those worlds, but will to those who are within them, because they're necessary. So, when I was having my boiler repaired a few years ago, when I was living in a flat in Croydon, a heating engineer came round and told me with a certain amount of concern that I needed to replace my Surrey flange. Now, I didn't have a clue what that man was on about, but it turned out to be the technical word for this particular thing here. Some of you will know this, but I didn't. But clearly, understanding that term and what it referred to and why it had that strange name is clearly important for understanding the problem, in that case with my boiler, and getting it fixed. And in every part of life, there are equivalents. Technical language that we need to get sussed if we're going to really understand a particular subject. Now, when it comes to our Christian faith, we generally try and avoid this, don't we? And for good reason. Because nothing makes a church less welcoming to people than when a load of Christian jargon is constantly being used. Christianese, as it's sometimes called. Words and phrases that make little sense to those in the outside world. So we generally try and avoid using words like absolution, atonement, redemption, sanctification. They're important words and they talk about things that are certainly very important, but if we can, we try to translate them into language that will be accessible to people. But there are exceptions. There are technical words that actually it's quite difficult to translate without taking away their meaning. Technical words that are really quite important to understanding the message of the Bible and its relevance to our lives. And one of those words that is important to understanding particularly the Psalms, but actually the whole of the Bible, is this word here. The word righteousness. Righteousness is a word that keeps being used throughout the Bible, and it's particularly within the Psalms. And it's sometimes used of God, and it's sometimes used of God's followers. So what does this word mean? Well, fairly obviously, it refers to being in the right, doesn't it? But it goes deeper in being a word that's associated with the covenant or the agreement that God made with his people. You see, the story of the Bible is the story of a good world going wrong. Through the coming into that world of human sin, and the same God who created that world being committed to restoring it. And God's way of doing that was to call a people to belong to him. Now, in the first instance, this was the people of Israel. Through the covenant, through the agreement, that God made with them. And righteousness is a key word associated with that covenant. When it's used of God, the word righteousness refers to his commitment to his covenant promises. 
and bringing his healing justice to the world. That's what it means when the Bible talks about God's righteousness. But when the same term is used of God's people, it refers to their commitment, our commitment, to keep the covenant, to keep living in the faithful manner that keeps our side of the covenant. And the story of the Old Testament is basically the story of how God, on the one hand, maintained his righteousness, and Israel, on the other, completely failed to maintain hers. And Israel's failure to be the righteous people that she was meant to be, Israel's failure to maintain her side of the covenant, that is the big problem of the Old Testament. And it's the problem that eventually finds its answer in God sending Jesus. God sending Jesus to be Israel's Messiah. God sending Jesus to be the one who would fulfill both God's side of the covenant and Israel's. Now, during Advent this year, when we prepare for the coming of Jesus, we're going to look, and it's appropriate for Advent to do this, we're going to look at the role of John the Baptist in preparing the way for Jesus. And you might remember the story of when Jesus came to John asking to be baptised. In Matthew's Gospel, we're told that John initially didn't want to do this. He said that he needed to be baptised by Jesus. But Jesus' response when John said that was very telling. These are the words that Jesus said. He said, it's necessary to do this, John, in order to fulfill all righteousness. And that sums up what I've been saying. Jesus came to represent everything that God's rescuing, saving love was meant to be on the one hand, but he also came to represent everything that his people's response to that love was meant to be as well. And it's because of both of those things that when we belong to Jesus, we receive the blessings that God's covenant always intended to bring to the world. So how does that rather extended introduction, how does any of that relate to Psalm 7 that we're looking at this morning? Well, Psalm 7 is a psalm that's all about righteousness. And it's all about both sorts of righteousness. It's about God's righteousness and it's about our righteousness as well. And the subheading of this psalm describes it in this manner. It says it's a song of David. We don't precisely know what that word means. It looks a bit like shenanigan, doesn't it? But it's not. A song of David that he sung to the Lord concerning Cush, a Benjamite. That's the little subheading that we're given. Now, unfortunately, we don't know anything about a man called Cush, the Benjamite. So it could look a bit of a dead end. But we do hear in 2 Samuel chapter 16, part of the story of David, about David being cursed by a man called Shimei, not Cush, but Shimei, but he came from the tribe of Benjamin. And this man cursed David as he fled from Jerusalem following the rebellion of David's son, Absalom. David's son, Absalom, rebels against him. David has to flee from Jerusalem. And as he does so, this man called Shimei appears, whether it was near him or some distance away, we're not quite sure. But Shimei cursed David. And he cursed David for shedding the blood of the family of the previous king, Saul, who came from the tribe of Benjamin. 
And given that Psalm 7 does go on to describe accusations made against its writer, against the psalmist, this does appear to be part of the background against which we're meant to understand it. So what does the psalm actually say? Well, first of all, like so many of the psalms, it appeals to God to bring his rescue or deliverance. So these are the first few words of the psalm. The psalmist says he takes refuge in God and he asks God to save and deliver him from those who pursue him, lest they tear him apart like a lion and rip him to pieces. Some ways that beginning of the psalm makes it like a lot of the psalms, which appeals for God's rescue to happen. Now the language there is really vivid, isn't it? Some might say a little bit overdone. But that's how it feels when we're being accused of something that isn't true, doesn't it? Everyone here probably would have had the experience of being slandered at some point where people say stuff about you that's not true. And it does feel like being ripped apart by a wild animal. And part of the value of the Psalms, as we've said a lot in this series, is that they provide the language for us to express how we feel in these sort of situations. So it starts that way, but in verses 3 to 5, we get to the substance of the accusations being made against the writer of this psalm. The writer of this psalm has been accused of the following. He's been accused of doing evil to those at peace with him and robbing his foes without cause. I've repaid my ally with evil, people say, and without cause I've robbed my foe. Now, that isn't quite what Shimei accused David of when he cursed him, so perhaps the context is different. But it's nonetheless a series of fierce accusations against the psalmist that he is bringing before God. And what he goes on to say from this point is fascinating. Because rather than hedging his bets and saying something like, look, God, if I have done anything wrong, please forgive me, the psalmist actually says these really remarkable words. The psalmist says this, If I have done this, and there is any guilt on my hands, he says, let my enemy pursue and overtake me. Let him trample my life to the ground and make me sleep in the dust. So what are we to make of this? Well, it's the prelude to the psalmist asking God to bring his righteousness, his justice to the situation in the verses that follow. But crucially, when the psalmist appeals to God to do this, he asks that the judgment that God brings include him as well. So the psalmist does say this, Arise, O Lord, in your anger, rise up against the rage of my enemies. He does say that, that's typical of the psalms. But he also says these words later on as well. Let's see them. He says, judge me or vindicate me, O Lord, according to my righteousness, according to my integrity, O Most High, O righteous God, who searches mind and hearts and brings to an end the violence of the wicked and makes the righteous secure. You, the righteous God. And when we read those words... It brings us up short, doesn't it? 
because it makes us realise that when we appeal for God's justice to come to the world and sort it out, that has to include sorting us out as well, doesn't it? Because if we're honest, we're a massive part of the problem with this world, aren't we? Like the people of Israel, none of our lives are righteous. None of us can stand before the judgment of the God who, to use the words of this psalm, searches minds and hearts. Appealing to God to sort the world out, that's dangerous because we're such a big part of what's wrong with it. Or it would be, but for Jesus. That would be the case without Jesus and what Jesus has done for us. Jesus Christ, as I said earlier, came to fulfil all righteousness. Jesus came on the one hand to embody God's righteousness, his commitment to rescue the world and its people, but Jesus also, crucially, came to embody that people in his faithfulness to God as well. Because Jesus was the only human being who's ever been able to say these words from Psalm 7 and stand before God. Jesus is the only person, the only human being, who's ever been able to say those words and be able to stand as a result. Could we say that? Could we say, judge me according to my integrity, according to my righteousness? Not without Jesus, we couldn't. And that's why Jesus' death on the cross was followed by his resurrection. When Jesus was raised from the dead, it was God reversing the verdict. Jesus died whatever his innocence as someone guilty, supposedly, under Roman law. That's why he was crucified. God reversed the verdict. God declared that that verdict was wrong and he was righteous. And crucially, if we belong to Jesus, which the Bible says we do through our baptism and the faith that follows and expresses this, then because of Jesus' death on the cross, the death that enabled God's judgment to be executed upon sin, we too can be declared righteous by God. Because that sin in which we share the sin of the world, which we're part of as much as anyone else, that sin which we share in has been taken down to death by Jesus when he died and its power got rid of. Earlier at the 9.30 service, we had a baptism, as we often do, very special baptism, because it was three members of one family. We had the baptism of Sarah Butters and her two sons, Matthew and Nicholas. Tom, her husband, was baptised earlier in life. It was wonderful. In fact, there's still water in the pulpit. I'm standing in a puddle here, because somehow the water got into the pulpit as well. Don't quite know how. And baptism, when it takes place at a church, is a crucial moment. Not just for those people being baptised, but for everyone present. And then even though we weren't there at 9.30 this morning, the fact of baptism has taken place, the fact that I'm standing in a puddle in the pulpit is probably quite helpful symbolically. Because what baptism, when it takes place, reminds us of, all of us, is that it's through being joined to Jesus that the righteous judgment that was declared of Jesus when he was raised from the dead is also declared on all of us who belong to him. Baptism declares that being joined to Jesus in his death and resurrection, 
being buried with him in his death, as Paul says in Romans 6, will then rise with him as well, being joined to Jesus in his death and resurrection. We have been washed clean and set free from that sin that would otherwise accuse and condemn us. And I guess the challenge coming from this to us this morning is being really honest before God. Being honest about left to our own devices, being honest that without Jesus and what he's done for us, we would be totally unrighteous. And therefore, we've got to be honest in seeing that we must seek righteousness purely through Jesus. Our righteous standing before God is entirely because of Jesus and what he's done for us. And it's expressed, as I say, in baptism. And even when things are being said unfairly about us, even when we're being slandered, even when people are acting badly towards us and saying stuff that isn't true, that should still involve us having a certain amount of humility. That's actually what we see in 2 Samuel 16. Go back to that story, see that picture of David being cursed by Shimei. Can we have that up there? Is it on the screen? We see this in 2 Samuel 16 when David was being cursed by Shimei. Because although the precise accusations that Shimei was making against David weren't true, David wouldn't let his soldiers kill Shimei or even stop him speaking. And that's probably because David recognised that there were other ways that he was being the man of blood or had been the man of blood that Shimei accused him of being. David actually had gone out of his way to make sure that he didn't kill the family of Saul, uh, the Benjamites. He was utterly ruthless towards Gentiles like Uriah when he committed adultery with Bathsheba and mercilessly killed her Gentile husband Uriah. And perhaps it was that David was aware that while the precise allegation that Shimei was making against him wasn't true, there were plenty of other ways in which he was that man of blood he was being accused of being. David, in other words, seems to have known that he needed God's mercy and therefore he was prepared to show mercy to others. And part of us bringing our tough experiences, and we do go through them, we can often encounter massive unfairness in the way we're treated. Part of us bringing those tough experiences and poor treatment before God needs to be a similar humility. A humility that is prepared to recognise our sinfulness, even if it doesn't quite correspond to what's being said about us. That type of humility will lead to us being prepared to show mercy to others when they fall short, because we'll recognise that we need that mercy as well. As the old expression puts it, there but by the grace of God go I. And that grace, that gift of righteousness, comes to us through the descendants of David. As the old hymn puts it, great David's greater son, the descendant of David who was born in the town of Bethlehem, Jesus Christ. And that's the reason why we can pray the rest of this psalm. We can pray the rest of this psalm with, with its appeal for God's righteousness to sort the world out without that striking fear into our hearts. 
You see, if it wasn't for what Jesus had done, it would be so dangerous for us to pray for God to bring his righteousness to the world, wouldn't it? Because we'd be there being judged as much as any other evil that exists within the world. But the great thing is that because what Jesus has done for us, we are declared righteous and we can appeal to God's righteousness to come and sort the world out without that striking fear into our hearts. We heard the reading from Grace earlier. Appropriately, we heard it from a person with the name Grace. And the words said this, Paul's words in Romans 8, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Why? Because through Christ Jesus, the law of the spirit of life has set us free from the law of sin and death. An important part of the humility of confessing our sin and allowing it to be borne by Jesus is recognising that all of the things that this psalm says about evil apply to us. But because of what Jesus did, what he's done for us, when his death enabled sin to be condemned, condemned in the flesh, as Paul puts it in Romans 8, another part of it that we heard, because of what Jesus did and the way that sin was dealt with and its power was defeated, we can also welcome alongside that humility that recognises that, we can also welcome and pray for the righteousness of God, his justice, to come into this world and put it right. We can pray earnestly for the arrival of God's justice, and we can do that without absolute fear that it will bring something terrible upon us. And the reason we can do it is because of what Jesus did when he died for us. And when we're joined to Jesus, we live within that righteousness and it starts changing and transforming our lives. And we can give thanks to use the last words of this psalm for this truth. We can say, I give thanks to the Lord because of his righteousness and we'll sing praise to the name of the Lord Most High.